One of the reasons that the church and the world need the God-entranced vision of all things that Jonathan Edwards had is that it is so rare today and yet so necessary. Mark Knoll wrote this, Edwards' piety continued on in the revivalist tradition. His theology continued on in academic Calvinism, but there were no successors to his God-entranced worldview. The disappearance of Edwards' perspective in American Christian history has been a tragedy. Evangelicalism today is, is basking in the sunlight of what may be very hollow successes. Evangelical industries, television, radio, publishing, music, recordings, a lot of mega churches, public figures, political movements give all the appearance of vitality and strength, but David Wells and Oz Guinness and others, including some of our speakers, have warned of the hollowing out of evangelicalism from within. The strong timber that used to be the mark of the tree of evangelicalism was great doctrines, God's glorious perfections, man's Horribly, horribly fallen nature, the wonders of redemptive history, the magnificent work of Christ in redemption, the saving and sanctifying work of grace in our hearts, the great mission of the church in battle with the world and the flesh and the devil, the greatness of our hope of everlasting joy at God's right hand. These unspeakably Magnificent things once defined us and were the strong timber and the root that gave support to the fragile leaves and the fruit that wave in the sun still. But it's not the case in many churches and denominations and ministries and movements in evangelicalism today. That's why these waving leaves of success may not be as promising as we think they are. There is a hollowness to the triumphs of our day. And what's missing is the mind-shaping knowledge and the all-transforming enjoyment of the weight of the glory of God. The glory of God, holy and righteous and sovereign and all good and all wise, is missing. God, as David Wells says, rests lightly upon the church in America today. Here are his words. It is this God, majestic and holy in his being, this God whose love knows no bounds because his holiness knows no limits, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. Now, that's an overstatement. But it is warranted. 
When Edward saw in God and in the universe that God had made and in the universe he saw it because he saw God through the lens of Scripture was simply breathtaking. To read Edwards after you catch your breath is to breathe the uncommon air of the Himalayas of Revelation. And when you breathe that air high up in the Himalayas of Revelation, it does not unfit you for ministry in the valleys of suffering. Rather, it sustains you and supports you there. In 1735, Edwards preached a sermon on Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. And from that verse, Be still and know that I am God, he drew out this doctrinal affirmation. Hence, the bare consideration that God is God may well be sufficient to still objections, and opposition against the divine sovereign dispensations. When Jonathan Edwards became still and considered the sheer being of God, the sheer fact that God is God, sheer, absolute, uncaused, ever-being existence, which implied infinite power, infinite knowledge, infinite holiness, he argued like this. These are his words. It is most evident by the works of God that his understanding and power are infinite. Being thus infinite in understanding and power, he must also be perfectly holy. For unholiness always argues some defect, some blindness. Where there is no darkness or delusion, there can be no unholiness. God being infinite in power and knowledge, he must be self-sufficient and all-sufficient. Therefore, it is impossible that he should be under any temptation to do anything amiss, for he can have no end in doing it. So God is essentially holy, and nothing is more impossible than that God should do anything amiss. When Edwards became still and knew that God was God, the vision before his eyes was an absolutely sovereign God, a self-sufficient God, an all-sufficient God for his creatures, infinite in holiness and therefore perfectly glorious, that is, perfectly beautiful in all of his manifold perfections. God's actions, therefore, are never motivated by the need to meet any deficiency, since he has none, but are always motivated by the desire to display his sufficiency, which is infinite. He does everything, absolutely everything, in order to display his glory. So our duty and our privilege, therefore, is to conform to this divine purpose for the universe in creation and history and redemption, and therefore to reflect the value of God's glory, to think and to feel and to do whatever we must do in order to make much of God. That's why everybody in this room has being. 
You are called into existence in order to reflect and display the glory of God, to render visible God to the world. Here's the way Edwards puts it. All that is ever spoken of in Scripture as an infinite end, as an ultimate end of God's works, is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. The refulgence shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to the luminary. The beams of glory come from God and are something of God and are refunded back again to their original so that the whole is of God and in God and to God. And God is the beginning and the middle and the end in this affair. That's the essence of Edward's God enthralled vision of all things. God is the beginning and the middle and the end of all things. Nothing exists without his creating it. Nothing stays in being without his sustaining word. Nothing has any reason for being that it does not get from him. All understandings of all things that do not take God into consideration are superficial understandings since they do not reckon with the true deepest connections of all things with what really matters in the universe, namely God. We today in America can scarcely begin to feel how God-ignoring we have become because it's the very air we breathe. We breathe God-ignoring air. And I hope that this conference and all the books that you will take home will be a means of your Beginning to smell something is dreadfully wrong. Get the breath of another century, the breath of the Himalayas, the air of a different person and a different day. Which is why I say that Edward's God-entranced vision of all things is not only rare but necessary. If we don't share it, we will not consciously join God in the purpose for which he created the universe. And if we don't join God in advancing the purpose for which he created the universe, we waste our lives and we oppose our creator. So my question tonight is, how shall we recover this God-enthralled vision of all things? Virtually every speaker in the conference, both in the breakout sessions back in those big round pods, as well as the plenary speakers here, will contribute to the answer to that question. How shall we recover the God-enthralled vision of Jonathan Edwards in our souls, in our churches, in our denominations, and in our missions? So I will not try to be sweeping or comprehensive tonight. I will focus for what for me on what for me has been the most transforming truth that Edwards has helped me see in the Bible. And I think that if the church would grasp and experience this truth that Edwards expresses 
better than anybody in church history, as far as I know, that there would be a great awakening to the majesty of God and the holiness of God and the horror of sin and the beauty of Christ and the wonders of redemption and the preciousness of our hope of everlasting joy. So here we go. No one in church history that I know of, with the possible exception of St. Augustine, has shown more clearly and more shockingly the infinite, and I use the word very carefully, the infinite importance of joy in the essence of what it means for God to be God and the essence of what it means for us to be God-glorifying. Joy always seemed to me peripheral until I read Edwards. He simply transformed my universe by putting joy in the center of what it means for God to be God and what it means for me to be God-exalting. We will become a God-entranced people if we see joy the way Edwards saw joy. So listen now, as he weaves together God's joy in being God with our joy in his being God. Quote, because God infinitely values his own glory, consisting of the knowledge of himself, love to himself, joy in himself, he therefore valued the image, communication, or participation of these in the creature. And it is because he values himself that he delights in the knowledge and love and joy of the creature as being himself the object of this knowledge, love, and complacence. Thus, God's respect to the creature's good and his respect to himself is not a divided respect, but both are united in one as the happiness of the creature aimed at is happiness in union with himself. In other words, if you didn't get that, here's my paraphrase. For God to be God, for God to be the holy, righteous God that he is, he must delight infinitely in what is infinitely delightful. He must enjoy with unbounded joy what is most boundlessly enjoyable. He must take pleasure in what is infinitely pleasant. He must love with infinite intensity what is infinitely lovely. He must be infinitely satisfied in what is infinitely satisfying. 
Otherwise, he would be fraudulent. Claiming to be wise, he would be a fool. Exchanging the glory of God for images. God's joy in God is part of what it means for God to be a righteous God. Press a little further in with me. Edwards takes us there. He makes this so plain. He sums up his spectacular vision. Nobody has helped me more with the Trinity than Jonathan Edwards. And here's his description of the inner life of what the Godhead means for God. The Father is the deity subsisting in the prime, unoriginated, and most absolute manner, or the deity in its direct existence. The Son is the deity eternally generated by God's understanding or having an idea of himself and subsisting in that idea. The Holy Spirit is the deity subsisting in act or in the divine essence flowing out and breathed forth in God's infinite love to and delight in himself and the whole divine essence does truly and distinctly subsist both in the divine idea and the divine love, and that each of them are properly distinct persons. You cannot elevate joy any higher than to say that one of the persons of the Godhead subsists in the act of God's delighting in God. We are not playing games when we talk about joy in the Christian life. Joy is not some peripheral reality in the universe. Joy is as close to the absolute essence of God as you can get. God's joy in being God is part of what God is. The Holy Spirit, a real, complete, full person of the deity, flows between the Father and the Son as the infinite, overflowing energy of almighty joy that they have in one another. So joy is at the heart of what it means for God to be God. And now let us see, flowing from this, how it is of the essence of what it is for us to be God-glorifying. This flows directly from the nature of the Trinity. God is Father, knowing himself in his divine Son, and God is Father, enjoying and delighting in himself by his divine Spirit. And now Edwards makes the connection with you. This paragraph that I'm about to read is the most important paragraph I have ever read outside the Bible. Except perhaps a love letter from my wife in 1967. But we'll put that in another category. 
God is glorified within himself these two ways. By appearing to himself in his own perfect idea of himself or in his son, who is the brightness of his glory. Two, by enjoying and delighting in himself, by flowing forth in infinite delight toward himself or in his Holy Spirit. So God glorifies himself toward the creatures also in two ways. So just as God glorifies himself in himself, he now glorifies himself among his creatures in two corresponding ways that correspond to the very essence of God flowing out as son and spirit from the father. God glorifies himself toward the creature in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Now he's talking about you. And communicating himself to their hearts in their rejoicing and delighting and in enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. I'm going to read that sentence again because that may be the most important one in the paragraph. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies his idea Idea, good theology. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that also testifies his approbation of it and his delight in it. Close quote. That's the most life-changing paragraph outside the Bible I have ever read. It has shaped Everything I have thought, preached, written, and done one way or the other for the last 25 years. The implication of this paragraph for all of life, these implications are simply immeasurable. They are inexhaustible. One of the implications is that the end and goal of creation hangs on knowing God with our minds Oh, how we believe in right doctrine and enjoying God with our hearts. The very purpose of the universe reflecting and displaying the glory of God hangs not only on right knowing, but also on authentic joy in God. To quote him again, God is glorified not only in his glories being seen, but also in its being rejoiced in. That was a great discovery. That was a great discovery for me. That God is glorified by our being satisfied in him. The chief end of man is not merely to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
If Edwards is right, it is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The great divide that I once thought existed between God's passion for his glory and my passion for my joy is no divide at all. If my passion for my joy is a passion for joy in God. I have found over the years that what follows from this shocks most Christians to the point of unbelief. Namely, that we should be blood earnest and deadly serious about being happy in God. We should pursue our joy with a passion and a vehemence that if we must, we will cut off a hand, we will gouge out an eye to be happy in God more than nudity. God being glorified in us hangs on our being satisfied in him, which makes being satisfied in him, again, I use the word carefully, infinitely important. Since God's glory hangs on our being satisfied in it, our pursuit of that glory is infinitely important. It becomes, for those who awaken to this truth, the animating vocation of our lives. We tremble at the horror of not rejoicing in God. We quake at the fearful lukewarmness of our hearts. We waken to the truth that it is treacherous. It is treacherous sin not to pursue satisfaction in God with all our hearts. There is one word. There is one word for finding more pleasure in created things than in God. Treason. Edwards put it like this. I do not suppose... It can be said of any that their love to their own happiness can be too high in any degree. Edwards does not believe it's possible to want to be too happy. Of course, it can be misdirected, which is all sin is. But it cannot be too strong. The passion to be happy, the longing for joy cannot be too strong. C.S. Lewis and Jonathan Edwards conspired in 1968 to blow my mind away by both of them saying, the problem with the universe is not that we want to be too happy, but that we are far too easily pleased. 50 Cent doesn't have a clue. Neither does Madonna, Spears, nor all the people in the top 
10, they don't have a clue when it comes to real hedonism. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon one time and preached it, believe it or not, on Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, which has in it this phrase, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And he drew out this doctrine. <laughs> Persons need not and ought not to set any bounds to their spiritual and gracious appetites. Rather, he says, we ought, quote, to be endeavoring by all possible ways to inflame their desires and to obtain more spiritual pleasures. I'm still quoting. Our hungerings and thirstings after God and Jesus Christ and after holiness can't be too great for the value of these things, for they are things of infinite value. Therefore, endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourselves in the way of allurement. Quote, there is no such thing as excess in our taking of this spiritual food. There is no such virtue as temperance in spiritual feasting. End quote. Which led Edwards to say, and it got him into all kinds of trouble with Chauncey and the Boston straight-laced old light types, I should think it myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. Hmm. So is he a charismatic or isn't he? Hmm. White-hot affections for God, set on fire by clear, compelling biblical truth, was Edward's goal in preaching and goal in life for one simple reason. It's God's goal in the universe. And this is the heart of Edward's God-enthralled vision of all things. Maybe the best way I can unfold it for a few more minutes with you is to raise some objections and let Edwards answer them. So these are objections that come to my mind. They must have come to his because he addressed them all. Objection number one. Doesn't this make me too central in salvation? Doesn't it put me at the bottom of my joy and make me the focus of the universe, all of this emphasis on pursuing my joy in God? Edwards answers with a very penetrating analysis of the joy of the hypocrite and the joy of the true Christian. 
It's a devastating distinction in the 21st century. It really is. Because this distinction that he draws, I'm afraid, might make a huge percentage of evangelicals feel unconverted. And they might not be converted. If their joy is resting in a different place than Edwards describes. So let me read this devastating paragraph. This is the difference between the joy of the hypocrite and the joy of the true saint. The hypocrite rejoices in himself. Self is the first foundation of his joy. The true saint rejoices in God. True saints have their minds in the first place inexpressibly pleased and delighted with the sweet ideas of the glorious and amiable nature of the things of God. And this is the spring of all their delights and the cream of all their pleasures. But the dependence of the affections of hypocrites is in a contrary order. They first rejoice that they are made so much of by God. And then on that ground, he seems in a sort lovely to them. That's devastating in a world that's been taught for 50 years that the gospel consists in a healthy self-esteem. How many people in our churches might there be, tragically, who have been taught, he makes much of you, he makes much of you, he makes much of you, and finally they bought it and God finally appeared in a sort lovely to them since he made so much of them. A person who worships God because God is man-centered is not God-centered. And the worship may not be worship. So his answer was no. No. Edward's call for a God-enthralled heart does not make the enthralled one central. It makes God central. Indeed, it exposes every joy as idolatrous that is not ultimately a joy in God. St. Augustine said in a prayer, He loves thee too little, Father, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. And Edwards would agree. Edwards exposes by this doctrine how many of us may put our joy on the bottom of self and use God to endorse that and thus find God in a sort lovely. Objection number two. Won't this emphasis on pleasure play into the central corruption of our age? 
the unbounded pursuit of personal ease, comfort, pleasure? Won't this emphasis soften our resistance to sin? There are many Christians who believe that stoicism is a good antidote to sensuality. It isn't. It's powerless. Powerless. There's a reason. The reason it fails is that the power of sin comes from its promise of pleasure and God means it to be defeated by a superior promise of pleasure. Willpower religion, when it succeeds, gets glory for the will. It produces legalists, not lovers. Edwards saw the powerlessness of this approach and listened to this amazing sentence. We come with double forces against the wicked to persuade them to a godly life. The common argument is the profitableness of religion. But alas, the wicked man is not in pursuit of profit. Tis pleasure he seeks. Now then, we will fight them with their own weapons. That's Edwards, not me. Though everything I learned on this score, I've learned from Edwards. In other words, Edward says, the pursuit of pleasure in God is not only not a compromise with the sensual world, it is the only power that can defeat the lusts of the age while producing lovers of God and not legalists who boast in their willpower. If you have a love of holiness in this room, if you weep, over the moral collapse of our culture, I pray that you will get to know Edward's God-enthralled vision of all things. Objection number three. Surely repentance is a painful thing and will be undermined by this stress on seeking our pleasure. Surely revival, which you pray for, John Piper, surely revival with, will begin with repentance, but you seem to make the awakening of delight the beginning of revival. The answer to this objection is that no one can feel brokenhearted for not treasuring God until he tastes the pleasure of having God as his treasure. No one can weep with authentic tears of brokenheartedness that he has not treasured God until he tastes what he has missed. In order to bring people to the sorrow of repentance, you must bring them to see God as their delight. Here's the way he says it. Quote, 
Though repentance be a deep sorrow for sin that God requires as necessary to salvation, yet the very nature of it necessarily implies delight. Repentance of sin is a sorrow arising from the sight of God's excellency and mercy, but the apprehension of excellency or mercy must necessarily and unavoidably beget Pleasure in the mind of the beholder. Tis impossible that anyone should see anything that appears to him excellent, appears to him excellent, and not behold it with pleasure. And it is impossible to be affected with the mercy and love of God and his willingness to be merciful to us and love us and not be affected with pleasure at the thoughts of it. But this is the very affection that begets true repentance. How much soever of a paradox it may seem. I'm still reading Edwards. How much soever of a paradox it may seem. It is true that repentance is a sweet sorrow. So that the more of this sorrow, the more pleasure. This is astonishing, and this is true. And everyone in this room who has walked with Jesus long enough, aware of your own indwelling sin and his amazing grace, know this is true. That one must see the beauty of Christ and delight in it or taste the delight that there is in it before one can be evangelically broken for failure to delight in it. It's all show before that. It's all mechanical before that. Objection number four. Surely elevating the pursuit of joy to a supreme importance, will overturn the teachings of Jesus about self-denial. How can you affirm a passion for pleasure as the driving force of the Christian life and at the same time embrace self-denial? Edwards takes this objection and turns it exactly on its head. He argues self-denial does not contradict the quest for joy. Self-denial destroys the root of sorrow. Here's what he says. Self-denial will also be reckoned amongst the troubles of the godly. But whoever has tried self-denial, whoever has tried self-denial can give in his testimony that they never experience greater pleasure and joys than after great acts of self-denial. Self-denial destroys the very root and foundation of sorrow and is nothing else but the lancing of a grievous and painful sore that effects a cure and brings abundance of health as a recompense for the pain of the operation. 
In other words, the whole approach of the Bible, Edwards would say, is to persuade us that denying ourselves the fleeting pleasures of sin, to use Hebrews 11.25, puts us on the path of pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. There is no contradiction between the centrality of delight in God as a motive and the necessity of self-denial, since self-denial destroys the root of sorrow. Objection number five. Becoming a Christian surely adds more trouble to life and brings persecutions, reproaches, suffering, even death. It is misleading, therefore, to say that the essence of being a Christian is joy in God. There are overwhelming sorrows in the Christian life. That's true. And it would be a compelling objection if it were not for the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. Edwards is absolutely unwavering, as I hope we will be in our day, that God is sovereign and good. He designs all the afflictions of the godly for the increase of their everlasting joy. God designs all the afflictions of the godly for the increase of their everlasting joy. He puts it in a very striking way. Sometimes his sentences must be read two, three, four times, and then you get up off the floor. This is one of those remarkable sentences. Christianity brings no new troubles upon man, but what have more of pleasure than of trouble. Christianity brings no new troubles upon man except what have more of pleasure than of trouble. In other words, the only troubles God will admit into your life are troubles designed to increase your pleasures eventually. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice in that day and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Yes, it's true. It's true. Becoming a Christian adds more trouble to life and brings persecutions and reproaches and sufferings and even death. And yes, there are overwhelming sorrows, but the pursuit of infinite pleasure in God and the confidence that Christ has bought it for us does not contradict these sufferings, but carries them. It carries them. 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So, yes, God designed an exquisite suffering for his son. And he endured it in a passionate pursuit of and confidence in the hope of joy on the other side. And I say to you, be sustained by that same vision. The pursuit of that joy doesn't contradict suffering. It carries it. The complete or the completion of Christ's global mission, the Great Commission, will require tremendous suffering from the church. And it will be sustained by a pursuit of joy in God. Objection number six, I'm not going to answer because it's my message Sunday morning, but I'll tell you what it is. One objection, where in all of your talk, Piper, is the cross of Christ? Where in all of this talk is justification by faith alone, through grace alone, on the ground of the righteousness of Christ alone? Where is regeneration by the Holy Spirit? All three of which are massively central and essential to everything I have said so far tonight. And some things are so precious and so valuable, you save them to the end. So... I close with objection number seven and leave number six for later. Doesn't the elevation of joy to such a supreme position in God and in glorifying God lead away from the humility and brokenness that ought to mark the Christian? Doesn't it have the flavor of a kind of cocky triumphalism that Edwards disapproved of so much in the great awakening of his day? And I answer with Edwards, it could be taken that way. Every truth can be distorted and misused. If that happens... It will not be Edward's fault. The God-enthralled vision of Jonathan Edwards does not make a person presumptuous. It makes a person meek. If I fail, that isn't Edward's fault. If he failed, it wasn't God's fault or the fault of his theology. It's the fault of our sin. But listen to these beautiful words as I close. I said when I held up this book, The Religious Affections, that I sat in a little apartment in Munich, Germany for three years. I'm not sure how many of those years it took me to finish this, reading a page or two a week. But I was reading it for a long time. This paragraph that I'm about to read comes out of this book and is a paragraph that broke me in half 
one of those Sunday nights. All gracious affections that are a sweet odor to Christ and that fill the soul of the Christian with a heavenly sweetness and fragrancy are broken-hearted affections. Did you hear that? All the gracious affections that smell good to Jesus are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. The hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy and leaves the Christian more poor in spirit, more like a little child, more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. Good words for a 25-year-old PhD student a little too impressed with himself. The God-enthralled vision of Jonathan Edwards is rare today and necessary because it is in its foundation so massive and in its fruit so beautiful. My prayer is that the Lord himself will open our eyes to see it in these days together and be changed. And since we are all in these rooms great sinners, and since we have a great Savior, I pray that the, the banner that flies over our conference and over our lives will be the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always Rejoicing. The glory of God, I think, depends on both if it's going to shine off of our lives. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we together as a people here repent of our excessive delights in your creation as compared with our delights in you. We repent. We're sorry. We are grieved. We are frightened at our own lukewarmness for what is infinitely precious. And what we long to have happen in these few hours on this weekend is that the Holy Spirit would come down and awaken in us taste for divine reality, taste for holiness, taste for the great glorious justice and truth and wisdom and love and grace and goodness and wrath and eternal being and unchangeable glory that you are. I pray that you would 
cut the calluses off of our spiritual taste buds and let us come alive to your beauty. So, Lord, be on us in song, in discussion, in prayer, in sleep. Forbid that any would go back to a hotel room and watch pornography. Forbid, O oh God, that we would sell our souls for a bowl of pottage. But rather, may we be in prayer. Lord, we don't take lightly the truth that you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. And the reason we don't take it lightly is because to you alone, to you alone belongs the glory, which is our prayer and our song. In Jesus' name.